If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the morning report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. I'm Dr. Raj, and I am super excited because, you know, on today's podcast, I get to talk about my new book, which is Medicine Morning Report Subspecialties, of course, Beyond the Pearls. And what I'm going to do is read a couple of chapters from the book, but I wanted to kind of mix it up a little bit. So I've had the target audience interview me on my podcast the last couple of chapters, which is going to be a goodbye med school, hello residency doctor. Her name is Eva Kondaker, and I've been enjoying hanging out with her. Eva, how are you doing? Hey, Dr. Raj. Thanks for having me back. I had a blast working on the few previous cases that we worked together um, on. And I feel like every time I spend time learning from you, I learn so much and I walk away with wealth of knowledge. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be working with you on this. All right. No, I, I feel the good vibe going through our little Zoom chat here. So if you're okay with it, I'm going to read the opening paragraph, which is always the most important part of the book to kind of set the tone. Then I'm going to throw it right back at you and you can grill me. How does that sound? Oh, that sounds great. And I love the way we do it. <laughs> I learned from the very best guys. And if you guys have been tuning in for the last few you know, podcasts, please take notes because this guy knows what he's talking about. And for all of those that are studying for boards, this will be extremely, extremely helpful. So All right, now that I have a big blush on my face, here we go. (laughs) We have a 55-year-old woman uh, was a new referral to the pulmonary clinic with acute on chronic productive cough and shortness of breath. She reports symptoms for the past two years, but they have worsened in the past three months. She denies hemoptysis, weight loss, or night sweats. Her medical history is significant for gastroesophageal reflux disease, GERD, and, uh uh-oh, tuberculosis but she was treated several years ago with the combination of rifampin, INH, parazidamide, and ethambutol. And then, uh uh-oh, curveball, she has scleroderma. The patient reports that her cough sometimes improves after a course of antibiotics, 
which her primary doctor occasionally prescribes. On exam, her blood pressure is 110 over 70, heart rate of 80, respiratory rate of 28, so she's tachypnic. O2 sat is 92% on room air. The patient is visibly coughing throughout the exam and has mild wheezing at the end of expiration. But otherwise, the remainder of the exam is normal. They get a chest x-ray, as they should, and it shows increased bronchovascular markings in the right lower lobe. And some tram tracking is noted. I love that. Oh, I love buzzwords. Yeah. All right. With that tram being said, track. Yeah. Yeah. back to you. <laughs> Fire away. Grill me. Honestly, we're going to have to go back to the top because you had mentioned so much and all of those things are so pertinent. So we're going to dissect the heck out of it. Um, so <laughs> let's go back. You know, last time when we talked and we did a case, you know, you did specify age is so, so important. In this case, you know, there is that 55 year old female um, and she's presenting with this productive cough that seems to be chronic. Should we be concerned uh, with the age here and like kind of keeping in mind some of these differentials? Um, let, let me know, Dr. Uh, Raj, because I'm I'm like thinking a lot of things here, but I don't know where, where to go with this one just yet. Well, you know, I'm going to steer the ship a little bit towards something called bronchiectasis. Now, I don't want to be kind of like spoiler alert here, but, yeah. you know, she does have a history of TB. There's some cough and sputum production. So let's kind of gear age and bronchiectasis. So, uh, Eva, do you mind if I put you on the spot a little bit? Yes, just some oh coffee. gosh oh gosh i'm in the hot seat again guys okay yeah let's do it let's do it why not <laughs> all right so when we talk about bronchiectasis all comers is bronchiectasis mainly seen in men or mainly seen in women what do you think you know this is a 50 50 chance for me to get it right uh, i'm just gonna go with women what do you think ding 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 correct we tend to see bronchiectasis more in women than in men and before i answer that even in more detail Follow-up question, you were talking about age. Is bronchiectasis a disease of the young or disease of the elderly? I would say it's definitely a disease of the elderly. Ding, ding, ding. Oh my God, you are, are <laughs> two for two on here. And so why did I bring these two things up under the umbrella of bronchiectasis? Well, there is a syndrome called Lady Windermere syndrome. Yeah, I see the look on your face. I see the look, <laughs> you know, and you know, yeah. You know, we, we do tend to go away from using syndromes nowadays because it's just uh -huh. a bunch of memorizing. But what is Lady Windermere syndrome is going to be women who are in the older side. They tend to have a lot of weight loss. They tend to be kykectic. They have, you know, all the symptoms of a bronchiectasis. And then when you do, you know, imaging like a CT of the chest, they get bronchiectasis in the right middle lobe and the lingula on the left. And, you know, the theory and the history behind it is that in the olden days, it just wasn't really super polite for women to just cough things out. And when they held their cough in, they really got a lot of damage in the right middle lobe and the lingula itself. So when we think of bronchiectasis, you know, many people say young because they always think cystic fibrosis and there's so many broader differential than that. So it's good to know your epidemiology when we talk about cough and bronchiectasis. Okay. Okay. You know, I'll never forget this now because you mentioned Lady Windermere. I don't know if people are tuning into this that watched Bridgerton. <laughs> it kind of <reminds, laughs> reminds me of that. It's like it's like Windermere, wind, lungs, like 
anyways, I, <laughs> you know, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I think it's funny. It's great. <laughs> is this really a true, like, was this actually found in somebody named Lady Windermere? Was it was it, actually this- a play. Wow, you're really oh. quizzing me now, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, these non-medical topics, dude. Right. <laughs> it was called right. Lady Windermere. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I always learn something new from you. So <laughs> this is fascinating stuff. You, so obviously age is an important uh, factor here. And um, because you said we often think that younger patients with cystic fibrosis have bronchiectasis, but that's technically not true, right? Well, they do. They definitely have it. You know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah, remember, yeah. CF, fortunately, is, is not a very common disease, thank right. God. You know, right, thank and God, that's yeah. why I think it's important to make a note of this is that Cystic fibrosis is only one part of the big bronchiectasis pie. You know what I mean? So exactly. that's the that's kind of like the take home message. Right. Okay, perfect. Thank you for that. And um, my second question for you. Now, this patient, they had mentioned that they were treated for TB. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, so they were treated with nine months of rifampin, INH, you know, ethambutal, like and then you threw in that curveball there that they have a history of scleroderma. What kind of a clinical picture are we painting here exactly? Well, I think there, there's two big, you know, issues here. Number one is the history of TB. So mm-hmm. when we go back to why does someone have bronchiectasis? Now, we don't know if she has it yet. And we'll talk about how do we work this patient up. But if someone has bronchiectasis, the question always should be, why? Why do you have it? One of the biggest answers for why is going to be infection. Being post-infectious really can cause damage in the lungs. It can cause a traction bronchiectasis from the scarring down the lung. But TB in itself is just, it's a very destructive, you know, bacteria. And people who had really bad TB could have destruction of the lung parenchyma, really bad bronchiectasis. So in this case, the question now becomes, does she have bronchiectasis because she had old TB? Or worst case scenario, you know, if she had TB, is the TB supposedly was treated? Did it eradicate everyone or did the TB come back? So all these things come in. And what I really wanted to also mention for people listening today is that when we talk about TB, in most cases, you know, the treatment for TB is going to be the four drug therapy. And we mentioned those four drugs. We give those four drugs for two months, then two drugs for four months for a total of six. And, you know, I just want to be down to earth and just say that, you know, taking these four drugs is not easy. They have so many side effects. And it's not just the things you memorize for the board exams. It's not just, hey, I'm on INH. I need to take B6. I have neuropathy. You know, that's mm-hmm. true. But, you know, taking these drugs causes nausea. There's so many, so much pill burden. And you have to take it multiple times a day. It's really hard to do it. So my heart really goes out to anyone who has to get treated for, you know, pulmonary or extra pulmonary TB for six months. It's really, really, really tough. Yeah. And and that's interesting that you mentioned that as well. Uh, this patient here, it says that she also had GERD and, you know, she, it kind of improved, her cough kind of improved with antibiotics. So, you know, obviously she was treated with these drugs. They probably did a number on her body. And then she also has GERD. Um, She has a history of scleroderma. So should we be concerned and be treating the GERD? Like, could it be possibly the GERD that's exacerbating all of this, not really the medications? Yep. So, you know, since I, I worked with my amazing, amazing, you know, authors on this case, we purposely put the GERD and scleroderma there for a couple of reasons. I'm going to blow you away. 
Number yes. one, <laughs> if someone comes in and they have, you know, bronchiectasis predominantly in the lower lobes, what do you got to think about? Aspiration. Mm, exactly. And remember on that chest x-ray, where was the findings? Right lower lobe, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, of yeah. course, when we talk about GERDs, I mean, that's going to be one of those risk factors for aspiration in itself. So is it the TB? Is it the GERD? Now I threw in the scleroderma. Why? So Eva, are patients who have scleroderma, are they predisposed to GERD? The answer is what? Yes. Yes. And mm -hmm. can scleroderma in itself cause lung issues? The answer is what, Eva? Yes. Totally. No. So, you know, you know, my theme, my theme is scleroderma is not just a disease of the skin. It's the disease exactly. of every single organ in the body, whether it's the heart, whether it's the GI tract. And of course, when we talk about the lungs, one of the two most important things that scleroderma does in the lungs is number one, fibrosis. And I know that a couple of days ago, we recorded our pulmonary fibrosis case. And I said there's something called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, but you can get the same type of presentation, but secondary to scleroderma. So it's going to be fibrosis secondary to scleroderma, not idiopathic. And also people with scleroderma can get pulmonary arterial hypertension, and that's horrendous. So there are yeah. so many different things that could be going on here. And let me just say this, maybe she's on immunosuppression. And if you're immunosuppressed, that predisposes you to what? Infections and infections. Exactly. If you predispose to what? Bronchiectasis. And I know. Yeah, See? Eventually. It, it just, yeah. It's just kind of circling around and around to figure out what's going on here. Mm, wow, There's the, everything is so intertwined and interconnected. I, I can definitely now follow why all of these things have been listed there. So let's move on and um, let's talk about what are some of the causes? Well, you kind of had already mentioned, you know, the etiologies of bronchiectasis. And I know in the book, there's this beautiful table that talks about the different causes. I know you viewers, I mean, people that are tuning in can't view it. But if you do get the book and you're following along, you can kind of refresh your memory by looking through that table. And it's really well outlined. Um, I, you know, in med school, we don't really learn all the causes. We may, might just learn one or two. But yeah, I just love how it's kind of well, put thank into categories. You. And, and let me just, let me just, you know, take the ball and run with this a little bit. Because the mm -hmm. reason why I wanted to talk about this chapter and put that table in is because the question of why you need to what's causing the bronchiectasis is because you want to treat the underlying cause. You know, think of bronchiectasis like anemia. Anemia is not a disease. It's a manifestation of an underlying disease. Same with bronchiectasis. I could easily make the radiographic diagnosis, but if you know what's causing it, if you treat the underlying cause, then you could prevent the bronchiectasis from getting worse. So what are going to be some of these causes that I would think about? I mean, let's just get it out of the way now. Cystic mm -hmm. fibrosis. You know, cystic fibrosis yeah. is an autosomal recessive gene mutation. And thank God it's not common. Here at USC, you know, we have a cystic fibrosis center. You know, it's a center of excellence. And I'm very, very proud of the doctors and nurses and pharmacists that work there. And I really get the opportunity to see CF patients who are, you know, kind of like getting close to my age. And that makes me so happy, it means we're doing the right stuff. And my heart goes out to them because they are kids when they get diagnosed and it's really hard being young and having someone tell you to take your insulin and do your airway clearance and do this and it, it, it's really hard and my heart goes yeah. out to them and i wanted to say that you know when we talk about cystic fibrosis you know a big game changer i just wanted to mention is that for once we could really attack the underlying genetic cause of cystic fibrosis and that is, is so awesome 
So for my, my step one peeps who are listening today, they're going to ask you on step one, what chromosome is the CFTR gene located on? And you're going to say chromosome seven, and you're going to say amino acid 508. And it is. And what is that CFTR gene code for? It's a chloride channel, you know? And the right. big thing with the, this chloride channel is that you can get chloride intracellular. That's all right. The problem is you can't get chloride out. And when chloride gets stuck inside the cell, what happens? It needs to be balanced neutrally. So the positively charged sodium goes to it. Now you got all the sodium in the cell. And Eva, what is that old saying where sodium goes? Who follows? Water. Water. So now all this water goes inside the cell. Everything extracellular gets very dry, viscous, and thick and sticky. And that's why you get all this mucus in the intestines, in the liver, in the lungs, in the pancreas. These are the main organs that are involved. So we have these what we call CFTR gene modulators. And these are the standard of care around the world is that if you have cystic fibrosis, we check for these genes. And if you contain, if you have these mutations, we could be on this gene targeted therapy that really has improved three main things. It improves the FEV1, which is one of the main things we look at when we do spirometry for the lungs. It reduces exacerbations, which is awesome. And it makes your quality of life just better. And if you could do these things to patients, it's great. So yes, cystic fibrosis is one thing, but let's just talk about other things immunoglobulin deficiency. So if you're low in IgG, IgM, definitely could be predisposed to a lot of infections. People with asthma, people with COPD can definitely have an overlap with uh, bronchiectasis. People with rheumatological diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis can definitely be predisposed to getting bronchiectasis. Aspiration can give you bronchiectasis. And of course, we think about people who are immunocompromised, who can't clear the mucus. And of course, everyone who took step one is going to say emotocilia syndrome. And sure, and someone's going to say catagenaria syndrome, where my heart is on the wrong side. There's dextrocardia and sinus invertus. And I'll say yes, even though that's going to be very rare. And of course, any infection under the sun whether it's going to be tuberculosis or non-tuberculous mycobacterium, any type of bacteria, any previous fungal or viral infection. So it's very important to figure out why to treat the underlying cause. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Exactly. Wow. That's, yeah, that's, that's very, very difficult. I can only imagine what cystic fibrosis patients go through and no mad respect for them. Um, Of course, definitely. Well, thank you for, uh, you know, really explaining that so well. Again, um, let's talk about, you had mentioned radiographs. In this clinical uh, scenario, the chest radiograph was obtained and you've seen these increased bronchovascular markings. And with tram track, oh my God, I hate that word. (laughs) It's everywhere, whether it's in the kidneys or the lungs. But anyways, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. What what are we looking for on these radiographs? How do we diagnose? What about sputum? Like, 
just explain all of that to me. Dr. Sure. No, I, I see where we're going with this. So we're talking about yeah. bronchiectasis, regardless of etiology. How do you make the diagnosis? You know, so mm -hmm. I would say you say shortness of breath, you say chronic cough. I say chest x-ray. Chest x-ray is always going to be a nice, best, first initial diagnostic test in many different cases. For example, you're in the cardiology section of the board exams. You say chest pain. I say ECG. You're in the endocrinology section, you say thyroid, I say TSH and free T4, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So think of mm -hmm. chest x-ray as the kind of like peanut butter jelly to shortness of breath and cough, you know? Yeah. So yeah, you yeah. get a chest x-ray. Now you can't diagnose bronchiectasis on a chest x-ray by itself, but you may see a lot of findings that could be indicative of. They are an obstructive lung disease, so you could have hyperinflated lungs. It could be very destructive. You could have structural changes in, in the lung parenchyma, you know, and there were just markings. You just describe when we say the word tram tracking, it's not wrong to say tram tracking on a chest X-ray. But I would say I really could clearly see it a lot better on a CT of the chest. And what a tram track is, is an air bronchogram. So you could kind of see the airway and on both sides of the airway, there's consolidation. So it kind of looks like a, a tram track. You know what I mean? So why did we put these buzzwords there? It's because we know many people sitting for their boards pick up my book. So you want to put a couple buzzwords there. So let's go back to how we diagnose. So if you want to diagnose bronchiectasis, you need to get a CT scan of the chest. I know every board review book says you've got to get a high res CT. And the answer is no. If you look at one of our previous podcasts, the only time I really get a high-res CT is when I think about interstitial lung diseases. I mean, all the way, especially for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. But here, you just get a nice CT scan. I don't even need contrast. And you would see the classic findings. And the important thing about getting that, you know, CT scan is to find out the distribution of the bronchiectasis. And if the bronchiectasis is predominantly upper lobe. Maybe I could think about cystic fibrosis. If it's more central, something called ABPA, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. If it's going to be lower lobe, you think about aspirations. You know, if it's diffuse, also think about cystic fibrosis. So distribution matters. And when you get the CT scan, they can describe the bronchiectasis. So is it kind of like cylindrical bronchiectasis where we talked about the tram tracking? Is it varicose bronchiectasis where it's very distorted like varicose veins is it cystic bronchiectasis that almost looks like thin walled cysts so you could describe it in many different ways so the gold standard to diagnose bronchiectasis in general is going to be a ct scan of the chest now you mentioned sputums and i think that's such an important thing because when someone has bronchiectasis their symptoms are very similar to copd yeah. dyspnea on exertion, weight loss, cough. But anytime you think of bronchiectasis, somewhere in the vignette, somewhere when you talk to the patient, they have to mention copious amounts of thick, viscous, tenacious sputum. And so you want to collect that sputum to see what they're colonized with, because that's going to make a big difference. People with bronchiectasis can be colonized with evil things like pseudomonas, can be colonized with mycobacterium avium intracelliae, it can be colonized with many different things. And the hard part is, is that when they exacerbate, how are you going to treat it? And maybe by getting all these different types of cultures, sputum cultures, AFB, bacteria, you'll know not just what might be the etiology, but what they may be colonized with in those airways. Because let me say one last thing. Bronchiectasis is a vicious cycle 
of infection and inflammation. Infection and inflammation, which means that bronchiectasis, if you break down the word, mean bronchi is going to be the airways. Ectatic means enlarged. And what happens when you have these enlarged airways, you can't clear the mucus. It stays there and it's a nidus of infection and it's a vicious, vicious cycle. Okay. Well, that, that, that explains a lot. And what about the hemoptysis? When do you start seeing hemoptysis really? Wonderful. Not for the patients, but you know, one of the, <laughs> yeah. one of, one of the most common <laughs> things that unfortunately people with bronchiectasis develop is coughing up blood. It's called hemoptysis. And it's such a broad statement. It could be in a whole other podcast. Are we talking about massive okay. hemoptysis, which is more of like a critical care thing? Is it blood tin sputum? But regardless, it's scary, isn't it? You know, it's kind of like right. you know, when of you course. have one drop of blood in the toilet, it looks like it's the Red Sea. You know what I mean? Exactly. And exactly. So, you know, it's scary when patients see this. But, you know, when you think about bronchiectasis, it's, you know, those vessels that are part of the airways are going to get ruptured. Maybe it's old TB. Maybe they have a fungal ball in there, but it's very scary. And you definitely can die from asphyxiation if the airways occluded with the blood. And it's very important that, you know, we, we talk about the possibility of hemoptysis. But if someone has anything that's scary or life-threatening or massive, they have to come to the hospital. They probably are going to end up in the ICU. They got to get monitored. And you want to treat the underlying cause. And that's going to be a combination of antibiotics, securing and protecting the good lung, securing the airway. And you know who, who really plays a big part of hemoptysis nowadays is interventional radiology. And to see yeah. if there's a way where they could embolize vessels leading to that airway. So, you know, it's really a multidisciplinary thing. Great question. Right. right. So, and then, so that kind of, you kind of answered a little bit of my sec next question. So now they come in, we want to manage it. We want to treat it. How do we how do we approach that? Like, is there a kind of step by step guide or? Sure. You know, now I would say two things. I think that number one is that, you know, if we're talking about, you know, bronchiectasis flare, you know, and they and they definitely flare sometimes. And it's really hard to identify because it's not like a pneumonia. When you have a pneumonia, you're very toxic. If you got strep pneumo, trust me, you're just going to look ill with high spiking fevers. You're probably looking and acting kind of septic, but people with bronchiectasis, they don't present that obvious, you know, so when they just don't feel right. And, you know, I just think about all my CF patients, you know, when they're not feeling good and just they call the CF clinic to get admitted is that you want to clear the airway, treat the underlying cause. You know, we just don't blast them with broad spectrum antibiotics. We really want to cover what they're colonized with, what infections they have in the past. Were they colonized with not just Staph aureus, but MRSA? Did they have Pseudomonas in the past? So all these things affect what we use for antibiotics. And if they come in for hemoptysis, well, of course, we want to quantify subjectively and objectively, you know, how much blood are we talking about? You know, we may want to get some imaging. We want to treat the underlying source. If it's going to be a fungal ball, or is it one area in the lung that we could see on imaging? And like I said, once we know we were protecting the airway, they're in a very safe monitor setting like an ICU setting initially, then of course it's multidisciplinary. It's not as easy as, hey, let's just take out some lung. You know, there are definitely some times where surgeons help us out. But even if we do what I just mentioned, which was that bronchoembolization, getting interventional radiology involved, it's still not definitive. And when you do any procedure, there is risks. So I think the very first thing to do is you know, give some antibiotics. The most common cause of just hemoptysis is infection in the airways causing bronchitis. 
So probably the first step, once we know the airway is secured, is just give us some antibiotics. Exactly. Okay. Wow. So then I think that kind of, uh, I had one last question. So no, then, fire away. You know, what about pulmonary rehab? Does, you know, is this something that we should consider in some of these patients? I know you love pulmonary rehab, <laughs> so I have to throw it in there. I really want to pick your brain on this one. <laughs> you, you know, and, and, and I'll definitely speak from the heart. And why did, why did I choose this case is that, you know, both my mom and dad have bronchiectasis. And my, my dad's got CLL. And when you have CLL, one of the things about, remember, it's going to be the, the B cells, you know, and yeah. B cells turn into plasma cells and plasma cells make antibodies. So people who have CLL don't make IgG. And because they don't have IgG, what did I say is one of the causes of bronchiectasis is immunoglobulin deficiency. So he got some bronchiectasis. My mom actually got MAI. So that's why... <laughs> This patient in this case, uh, yeah. I gave the patient MAI, and my mom yeah. is a very, very beautiful, smart, intelligent Lady Windermere. You know, yeah, so, obviously she gave birth to you. <laughs> well, I don't know, about, that doesn't make her too special, but she's just special in general. And so, what do I give my parents? Is uh, is is the airway clearance? And I send both okay. of them to pulmonary rehab. And like I said, pulmonary rehab is amazing because they're just great people. And when you want to do airway clearance, it's not that easy. You know, you really want to talk to respiratory therapists who are familiar with airway clearance. There are breathing techniques and ways that patients, just based on how they breathe, they can clear the airway themselves. But we use devices mm -hmm. to kind of rattle the lungs a little bit to, uh, to bring up uh, all the mucus because airway clearance is the most important, no matter what the etiology is of the bronchiectasis. So yes, I think pulmonary rehab is important, but airway clearance is the mainstay therapy, whether it's cystic fibrosis, whether it's secondary to TB, whether it's from immunoglobulin deficiency, you got to do consistent airway clearance. And what is the airway clearance going to be? Well, of course, it's going to be exercise, breathing techniques, there are devices. I'm going to use a couple brand names out there, something called the aerobica something called the acapella valve. And these are all like little valves when you breathe in and out with the appropriate technique, it breaks up the airway. And then there's vest therapy, you know, and vest therapy has come a long way. My parents have a vest therapy that, you know, they strap it on for 15 to 20 minutes in the morning and at night, and it shakes the chest. And when wow. it shakes the chest, they can just cough it up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And of course, there are other things like cough assist devices out there. So I really, I'm glad you brought this up because that's going to be the mainstay therapy. Then on the other side of things, of course, you know, when we talk about cystic fibrosis and everything else, you know, you want to treat the underlying cause, but there are certain things we do for CF that we don't do for other causes of bronchiectasis. Should I kind of mention a little bit more of that? Yes, yes. Go ahead. Right. So mm -hmm. I think the one thing that jumps out at me when I talk about CF by itself, CF really benefits from something called DNAs. It goes by the brand name Palmazine. And DNA is something that you inhale. Most people see it, do it once a day. Some people do it twice a day. And it just breaks down these proteins, doesn't make the mucus so viscous, and helps clear the airway. Now, DNA, brand name Palmazine, is really has the most robust data for people with CF. We don't use it for other causes of bronchiectasis. But if you talk about bronchodilators like beta-2 agonists, sure, give it to everyone with bronchiectasis. It's really not going to be any downside. Another thing I wanted to bring up is steroids. I know that many people are kind of like, give steroids to everyone. Why not? You know, <laughs> but you know, if you purely have cystic fibrosis, there really isn't a role for inhaled or oral steroids in cystic fibrosis. Now, don't get me wrong. If you have something called ABPA or if you mm -hmm. have asthma, sure, you could give 
the steroids or the inhaled steroids because there's that combination. But for pure cystic fibrosis, we don't do these things. And one thing I wanted to mention for CF people, and you can kind of carry this over a little bit for people with just bronchiectasis in general, you just don't want to be colonized with pseudomonas, you know, and if you got a oh, lot yes. of, and if you get mm -hmm. a lot of recurrent flares of your bronchiectasis, we do use medications as prophylactis to reduce the flares. Sometimes you may consider putting them on an oral macrolide like azithromycin. And that's mm -hmm. because azithromycin doesn't kill pseudomonas. It doesn't cover pseudomonas. It helps out with inflammation. Or we'll do inhaled medications like tobramycin, which is the aminoglycoside inhaled. And we'll do that one month on, one month off. And these are going to be people who have, who are colonized with pseudomonas and they're getting a lot of flares over there. Now, I will say this because I'm just in a really bored, pearl mood. If you have CF, what is the one, one bacteria that we just never want you to be colonized with because it may take you off the transplant list? It's called Burke Holderia sapatia. That's, oh that's yeah. the no-no. <laughs> you really don't want that if you're CF. And like I said, mm -hmm. you know, when we talk about lung transplant, a lot of my CF patients are in the transplant clinic getting evaluated, but you've got to get a double lung transplant because with bronchiectasis, if you leave that, that bad lung in there with all that mucus and bacteria, when we immunosuppress you to get the lung transplant, you know, you're really going to get some nasty, nasty sepsis. So it's got to be a double lung transplant. Oh, wow. Interesting. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Raj. You've again increased my knowledge in all of this. So I really, really had a great time again learning from you um, and obviously talking to you about bronchiectasis today. Great, great case, Dr. Raj. Again, well done on the book. Oh, thanks. And you know what? Let me just throw one last thing because I'm all about someone's going to ask me what's the punchline. The punchline in this in this chapter was patient had MAI. You know, some people call right. that MAC, uh -huh. Mycobacterium mm -hmm. avium complex. And I'll end this little banter with this is that if you want to diagnose MAC, it's not easy. You know, there's very specific IDSA guidelines, the Infectious Disease Society of America, and it's going to be two separate sputum cultures or doing a bronchoscopy and getting one bronchoalveolar lavage positive or a biopsy positive. And just because you made the diagnosis doesn't mean you need to treat. The take-home message is the treatment for MAI is sometimes much, much, much more harder than just watching because it's going to be triple drug therapy with things like ethambutol, things like rifampin and clarithromycin for one year minimum. And wow. there's so many toxicities of the drugs. So it really, you have to make a decision whether you want to get treated or not. And sometimes just watching can be the right thing. But like you asked me about life-threatening hemoptysis, serious weight loss, of course, you know, you can make that shared decision-making about therapy. So I love this book. It hits home. It reminds me of my folks. I think you guys are going to have great pearls from this. Eva, you're the best, dude. It was so nice doing this segment with you. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.